You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. see you today. Um, if you're new here, my name is Jeff. I have, thanks guys. If uh, you're new here, my name is Jeff. I get the privilege of teaching the Bible here at Harvest. And so um, you're going to need that Bible and you need to turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 here in the next uh, few minutes. If you got to know me, one of the things that you would realize pretty quickly about me is that I am um, really bad at logistics conversations, which means that uh, my, my marriage has a hole in it because I don't know if you know this, some of you in the room are already married, you probably do know this. Those of you who are not yet married or are planning on it or thinking about it, uh, I need to warn you that you are absolutely marrying the person of your dreams and it's gonna be romance from now until forever, okay? Yeah, all of that. You also are going to be engaging in a business enterprise that has almost everything to do with logistics. You are basically gonna become UPS over the next little bit here. And by that I mean uh, a lot of your conversations will start being, especially when you have kids, will start being about where people are supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there, how they're supposed to be there, and why they're supposed to be there. So um, when are you going to end up getting the kids to their soccer practice, and can we meet there, and then I'm gonna take yeah, that car, and I'm gonna take it over to this other location, but we have to get something to eat. Is there a Chick-fil-A nearby? You're gonna eat a lot of Chick-fil-A, okay? Uh, what do you wanna do for our vacation? Because we, the dog needs to be looked after while you're gone for the vacation, and we need to make sure that the dog is not in a place where the dog is not happy, so let's figure out where we can do that. What dates work for you? What dates work for me? How's your schedule? Honestly, this is gonna be a lot of the discussion that you'll end up having. My problem is that I'm a kind of big picture person. I love talking about strategy and ideas. And if you start talking to me about logistics, you have 30 seconds. If it goes beyond that, my brain is going to think about baseball or a myriad of other things that have nothing to do with what you're talking about. You'll be looking at me, and I'm really good at pretending to look at you, but my brain is off in some other la-la land somewhere, right? Thinking in cartoons at that point. So this has created some challenges, of course, in my, my marriage because you have to be involved in the logistics business in order to be married, and so it's not uncommon for my wife to sit down across from me and look me in the eyes and say, Jeff, I need to, we need to talk about, you know, tomorrow and who's using the car. And I'm like, uh-huh, and she immediately says, don't you start thinking about something else. I'm right here, right? Just look right here, honey, right here, right here. Um, I tell you that because basically 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 11 is a list of logistics. I'm going to read it to you. Some of you, if you're like me, will get two verses into it and then you'll start thinking about lunch. Most pastors don't preach this text. They skip through passages like this because they're like, yeah, I don't know, what, what are you gonna learn about Paul's travel plan? Here they are. Here's what he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But 
I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Riveting. I mean, I was reading it to you, but I was honest, I was thinking about other things. <laughs> what can you possibly learn from a passage about travel plans? What can you possibly learn about Paul's plans to visit them maybe over the winter, but I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost? You'd be surprised. <laughs> I was surprised. You sit down, you study this passage, and you actually realize that Paul, through a lot of his little language, you end up finding out about the way that he views his life and his world and some rich application here, actually, believe it or not. So what do we learn from Paul's travel plans in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 11? At least three things, but these are the three I've chosen. One, give as able. Two, live as directed. And three, honor as is right. Give as able, live as directed, honor as is right. Here's what I mean by give as able. Look at the first verse of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 16. Paul writes, now concerning, uh, this is his way all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians to signify, signal, hey, we're talking about a new subject here. So 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection body and what's going to happen for what's our great Christian hope. At this point, he's like, we're done talking about that. Now concerning, I got another subject that I want to bring up with you people. What is the subject? Well, it's the collection for the saints. Who are the saints? And what is the collection? Well, you probably can realize the collection is finance, is money. And the saints that he's referring to actually are the, are the people in Jerusalem. Okay, so we're in Corinth, which is out in kind of the... Greek world, it's sort of in the area today where Greece sort of is, right? And in Jerusalem, which is where Israel is, right, on that side of the Mediterranean Sea, where Jerusalem was, they were having a famine. And a lot of the people who were living in Jerusalem at the time, almost entirely Jews, uh, were suffering. So the church in Jerusalem, which really was the first church, right? They have Pentecost happens there, and they, you know, they start speaking in tongues that... All the people can understand, but they're not the tongues that the men who are speaking them actually know, and so it's a miracle, and all the people come around, and Peter preaches a sermon, and thousands come to faith in Christ. This is where the church began. It began among Jewish people. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and they started reaching out to the region in Jerusalem and in Judea, where all the Jewish people were. Eventually, there's a persecution that comes upon them, and the church is scattered to all the different places, including places like Corinth, which is in the province or the state of Achaia. Macedonia, which is just above it, and Galatia is another state. I think they went all, all over the place, to Michigan and to Illinois and to Indiana. And churches were planted in each one of these locations. So here's the thing. These churches were flourishing because they weren't having famine and maybe they had better economies, but the economy in Jerusalem was terrible and the, early, the, the church that spawned all the other churches was having a real difficult time. And so Paul is like, this is a cool opportunity. What we're gonna do is we're gonna go to all of the churches that were planted that are mostly Gentile churches and we're going to take a collection, right, from each one of the churches, a special offering, and we're going to take the money and we're going to go over to Jerusalem and hand it to the hands of the Jewish people. This is going to, of course, show the unity of the church as a whole, but even more so, it's going to show that the Jews and Gentiles, who for ages have hated each other, will now be in partnership together. So the symbolism of the collection is huge. So Paul, in it actually, this collection is a subject that Paul talks about a lot in his letters. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about it. He says, it's superfluous. There's a word of the day. 
Now it's superfluous or redundant or not necessary to talk about over and over again. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. This is the collection. Like I've already talked to you about this collection that I'm gonna take for the people in Jerusalem. For I know your readiness. Of which, okay, you guys are ready to give. When I show up, you're gonna give me the money. Uh, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. Macedonia was the adjoining state. This is basically saying, hey, you guys in Illinois, I'm boasting about you to all the people in Wisconsin, which happens all the time, I'm sure. So I've been boasting about you, saying that Achaia, the state of Illinois, has been ready since last year. So when I'm going up to Wisconsin, I'm saying to them, do you guys haven't believed what's going on in Illinois? They're ready to give all their money to this. What do you think? You're gonna be outdone by people in Illinois? You love that? That's his motivation. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. In other words, the people up in Wisconsin are like, oh, I'm not gonna be outdone by people in Illinois, stupid Chicago. So... I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready. So I'm going to come and take this collection as I said you would be. See, otherwise, if I show up and you're not ready, even though I've told everybody else you will be ready, if some Macedonians, if some of those Wisconsiners come with me and find that you're not ready, um, we are going to be humiliated. Wisconsiners are like, yeah, I thought you said they were ready. Typical Chicago. To say nothing of you for being so confident. We, you guys have to give. This is a special offering, okay? We're not talking about these. He's not talking about money that is given to the church in Corinth. It's money The church in Corinth was expected to take care of themselves, but this was an extra offering that he was going to take elsewhere. Romans 15, he talks about it again. He says, "At, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. There it is. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed, look, they owe it to them. Why would they owe it to them? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, so the blessings come from Abraham to the Jews, right? And then Jesus fulfills the promises, and then through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the Gentiles get access to eternal life. So from Jew to Gentile come the the spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings, so we owe it, in other words, to the Jews. You can see the theological point that the guy's making. My big, my big point here is that this is what he's talking about when he gets into this collection, and it's a massive, massive issue for you. Now concerning the collections for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do on the first day of every week, each of you, notice, every person Every individual is to put something aside and store it up. So I want you to take your little, you know, Dave Ramsey envelope, and I want you to stick some money in there. And you set it to the side. And the next week, the first day of the week, we're going to set it aside. And we're going to, I'm coming soon. I'm kind of coming this little time later, and you're going to give this special, I'm going to give this special offering for the money that you set aside. Notice, though, you're supposed to do it as he may prosper. So, look, if you have more, then you have a greater responsibility to put more aside. If you have less, it's not saying, oh, you don't need to give anything, right? It's saying the amount that you would have to give would be less. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And I want to show up and have all of you guys sitting there and being like, hey, I didn't hear about this at all. Yes, you did. It's right in this letter. So be ready for when I arrive. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. This is an interesting phrase. This actually should read this way. It's always amazing if you put commas in the right place. It means something different, right? It's because if I don't have the comma there, I said those whom you accredit by letter. So the Corinthians are going to write a letter to Paul 
accrediting, endorsing certain people. Well, dear Paul, uh, I think Joe, Janet, and James should all be in this group who's gonna deliver this money. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want you guys to pick out certain people and then I'm gonna write a letter recommending them to the church in Jerusalem so that when they go and they bring the money, they're not shocked, like, who are you guys? Oh, you people have been sent from Paul and from the church in Corinth, but you're supposed to set aside certain people who are accredited, which of course makes sense because, you know, you, if, <laughs> if you wanted to send money across town to another location, just across town, you wouldn't be like, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. You can do it. You're here. I know nothing about you, and no one knows anything about you. Here, you take the money. You wouldn't do this. What you do is you end up finding somebody who's trustworthy and hand it to them, and then they'd send it off. And this is what Paul's saying. Pick some people who are going to be really great and send it off to them. If it seems advisable, right? So if you can't find certain people who are going to be really trust trustworthy, if it's advisable that I go also, then they'll, they'll, they'll accompany me. Exciting stuff, right? And yet, listen, if, if you stop right here and, you, and you, you ask the question, all right, what is it that we learn from this short little, little bit? I, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. I have two things even just in this little section. Number one, I think our church is responsible for the needs of our own body, but also the pressing needs of other faithful churches. You see that? Do you see that? We are responsible for what we're doing, the ministries that we support here that are going to serve Harvest Bible Chapel, but that is not where our responsibility as a church ends. There will be moments where other churches, faithful, godly churches that have some sort of tie to us they're in grave need. And when they're in grave need, it is not our attitude to say, good luck with that. Our attitude should be this. We're here to help. We're gonna take a special offering. We're gonna give to your particular, your particular need. Um, I like to talk uh, of churches in general as, a, as an armada. Do you, do you know what I mean by an armada? It's like, a, it's like a, a battle group of ships. Because, you know, the Navy doesn't go out normally and just send one ship out to a particular place. It sends one ship off, a big one, maybe an aircraft carrier, and then there's a battleship nearby, and then there's a bunch of little ships, and they all, you know, serve different functions, but they're all working together to the same goal. I actually think this is a great picture for the way the church of Jesus Christ, gospel, faithful churches function and should function in the, in the world today. There are some big, big ones, right? They don't move that quickly, but they are like, without the big ones, it, we're gonna be in a bit of trouble, right? The aircraft carriers and battleships, I mean, it's gonna be a bit hard. There's more people there, and they need more people in order to run the ship, but they're obviously also really important. There's also little ones, and they're a little more nimble, right? They're medium-sized ones and all sorts of things. And people work on the different ships. But listen, if one of the ships, right, hits a mine in the water and gets damaged or, you know, a bomber comes down strafing and it hits one of the ships and the rest of us are fine, the rest of the ships don't say, oh, glad that wasn't us. Instead, they would say, it was us. So you four or five other ships, you go over there and you help this one to get, to get better. You know, you might need to tow it or you might need to get on board and take the people off and put them on your place and try to fix the ship up so you can put the people back and send it along. This is the way an armada works. You don't leave things behind. And that's the way the church really ought to function. Is Yes, we are one of the ships in an armada. We proclaim the gospel today. And we pray for churches. You come to Harvest long enough, one of the things you'll notice is every one of our, our services, we pray for other church, gospel faithful churches who are proclaiming the same gospel. We are paying attention to the other boats in our armada and saying these are important too. 
Our goal, listen, our goal is not to say, the name Harvest shall be known to all and bowed down to as is appropriate. Nope. Our goal is to say that we are one of many, and when the many are in need, okay, we focus on that. And when we're in need, we hope that they would focus on us. You know, there's a, there's a church, my last church, uh, one of the best things that ever happened there uh, actually happened when there was a, there's a river, a large river called the Fraser River that separated a town called Abbotsford where my church was and, a, and an area called Mission. Mission was on the edge of what we call the First Nations lands, which is like the Indian Reservation. Uh, it was always difficult for churches to do ministry and mission. They have such a history of starting and failing and all sorts of stuff. Well, one of the churches that had had probably one of the best uh, experiences or ability to reach people up in mission started in on a building project um, through a series of circumstances. They were told that it was gonna cost like $900,000, but it actually cost $4 million. <laughs> so they get in this building project and halfway through the building project, the church splits because of a whole bunch of other issues. And the people who are left there have no ability to pay the bills. They got a half done building in the back. And they, they barely have enough money to pay for anything. And so they're like, we're done. We're done. We're going to call, declare bankruptcy. We're, it's over, right? We're going to shut the church down. And this, this is just going to be like one of those old shopping malls that people go into today and go, look at what used to be. Well, we're kind of traveled through uh, the different, you know, ways it travels, the grapevine, and eventually came to our church and some of our leaders, and they were like, I wonder if we should do something about that. So we made a meeting with the elders of the church and started talking to them a little bit. So what, what do you guys see in the future? What are the challenges that you face? These sorts of things. And the elders of the church, through a series of conversations, ended up saying, what would it look like if you guys actually ended up adopting us and taking over and starting and relaunching this ministry. And we're like, okay, we've never done it before, but we'll give it a try. So we did. We asked a whole bunch of people to go across the river and to plant this church up there, replant this church up there. They start really hard, difficult, difficult. I got a, I, I got a text message yesterday from a friend who is involved with that church replant. That church is one of the largest, if not the largest church north of the river in British Columbia. It is actually having more impact in that community than maybe a church has ever had there. And it's, it has, it's only due to the fact that there was one other church, one other ship of the Armada that was like, yeah, we just don't want to leave that alone. It's, it's actually our responsibility. Did you guys know that in Phoenix, Arizona, there's a large church in Phoenix, Arizona that instead of raising money for one of their building projects, because they had done that in the past, and they'd built a whole bunch of things, rightfully so, the church had been growing. But there was a church in Phoenix, Arizona, that said, you know what, you know what would be really cool is that there's a whole bunch of other churches that we believe in in our area, and they're wanting to do, you know, capital projects, like build out a, a section of their worship center, or they want to have new screens so they can broadcast stuff on there so people, it's easier for them to see. What we should do is we'll raise money among our church and we'll give some of that money to each one of those churches as they apply for it. So they raised like millions and millions of dollars and they started handing it out to different churches for these capital projects in the city of Phoenix. And another church, years later, another church, another large church saw that church do it and they were like, huh, we should do it too. And so they raised $3 million and they're handing stuff out. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a group of churches that share like that? Wouldn't that be cool? I think it would be really amazing and probably the way the church is supposed to function. But instead, most of the time, we just sit on it, you know? As long as we're doing fine, it's great. It's even worse than that, isn't it? It's not just if we're doing fine. We view other churches a lot of times as just competitors. We're Coke, they're Pepsi. We're McDonald's, they're Burger We're Culver's, they're Burger King, right? Ought not be. Our church is responsible for the needs of our own body, but also the pressing needs of other faithful churches. I'll give you another application from his little description of the collection. 
We all should give. But those whom God has prospered have greater responsibility to fund God's mission. In fact, I'll go so far to say that the reason God has prospered other people in the church is so that they might be the ones, the conduits, the pipes through which the blessings flow to the others. It's not just that we say, oh, Lord, thank you for blessing me. Now I can get a new, uh. It's, Lord, thank you for blessing me. How can I now utilize the things that you've given me to bless the church more, to bless my brothers and sisters more? In fact, in that passage um, in Second uh, Corinthians that I read just a few minutes ago, Second Corinthians 8, the ver- chapter just before, it's, it, he says, for the readiness is there, readiness to give is there. It's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You should give based upon how much you have. For I don't mean that others, right, the people you're giving to should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of what? As of what? Of fairness. What do you mean fairness? Of fairness, you've got some that God gave you. They don't have it. You share it with them. Listen, it's not mandated. It's not communism. No one's going to come along and say, if you don't do it, you're going to the you know, gulag. But it's a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need, listen, so that their abundance may, you know, in a few years' time when the economy stinks, and it will, their abundance might supply your need that there may be fairness. Um... One of the worst jobs that I've had as a husband is one that I did not know I was going to be involved in when I got married, right? You're going to get involved in a business partnership, one. And number two, gentlemen, your responsibility is going to be to clear the drains out of hair that is not yours. Okay? Um, Most of your daughters and spouses don't want to do this job. In fact, they think it's disgusting, which is odd because it's coming off of their head. It's not coming off of your head. It's coming off of their head. What happens is the, the hair goes in the drain and it collects and 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 eventually the drain, of course, gets clogged and you can't do it. And, and then the water, you always know. How do you know? How do you know it's a problem? Well, when the water backs up into this beautiful puddle, right, that is where COVID came from. <laughs> it's not good to drink. It stinks to high heaven. And your wife says, um, the drain is clogged, I'm going to Target, right? And that's what she's doing. <laughs> so your job now is to take one of these little snaky things, and you shove it down there, and you pull it out, right? And you keep pulling, baby. And it eventually comes out, and you're, you know, and you're going to the toilet and trying to make it happen. You, you've got the hazmat suit on, and you're trying to make all of this stuff happen. You have the hazmat suit on because it's disgusting, It's gross. You don't like it any more than she does. You say mean things about her while you're doing it. Wish she were bald, right? (laughs) Maybe she's becoming bald. I don't know. But see, this is what happens when you end up having something that is designed to carry water through it. When it stops in the middle, it stinks to high heaven. And I'm I'm telling you that... In the Lord's nostrils, those of us who choose to hoard things and collect them for our own sake, when the Lord has actually given them to travel through us for the blessing of others, it backs up into a puddle that makes the Lord want to go, and makes the rest of us want to go, so look. If the Lord has blessed you or is blessing you or will bless you in a particular way, please, please recognize the reason for it and live accordingly. All right, second one. Live as directed. Give as able. Live as directed. Look at verse 5 with me of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to visit you, he says. So here comes the real logistics talk. 
let's talk about when I'm gonna be able to come and you guys will be able to host me and what I'm thinking about at the time of the year and are you guys gonna be there at that time or on holiday or whatever. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter because you know, they didn't like to travel in winter any more than you and I do. So that you may help me on my journey. See, they had this, these traveling uh, speakers in the, in the Roman world, and the, the church had them too, right? So you would have Paul, he'd come and he'd teach things to a congregation, and then he'd move on. And hot on his heels sometimes, there'd be like Apollos, who was another guy who was like Paul. And maybe another Christian teacher would come in. Most of the letters of the New Testament were written to uh, churches who the guy who came in after Paul, he is a heretic. <laughs> Paul's writing back and saying, get rid of that guy, he's terrible. But the idea of traveling itinerant teachers coming through was the way it worked. And the expectation was when they come through, you're supposed to help them, meaning billet them, uh, take care of their needs. Maybe they need to have some finance. They're missionaries, so you're supposed to pick up and send them off with something more than what they came with. For I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I'm gonna stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. This is basically like saying, I'm gonna stay till Christmas. For a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Okay, hold on. A wide door for effective work has opened to me. Praise God. Isn't that something to thank God for? I mean, seriously, the Lord has opened a way for Paul to have an impact in the lives of these people. And there are many adversaries. Who are we talking about? So he's in Ephesus, right? Let's stay in Ephesus till Pentecost. So who are the adversaries of Ephesus? Well, we know who they are. Or at least the story. I love this story. I'm going to just read it to you, okay? In Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 34, here's, here's what it says. About that time there arose uh, no little disturbance. That's a nice way of saying it. Concerning the way. The way was what they called the church in the early, early, early days. You know, the Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, of Ephesus, who made silver shrines of Artemis, who was like the goddess of Ephesus. If you went to Ephesus in those days and you looked at the highest hill, and you would see the most ornate temple, and that was the temple to, to Artemis. She was the goddess of multiplication, basically. So if you wanted kids, you worshiped Artemis. If you want more money, you worship Artemis. If you want more crops, worship Artemis. So you can imagine, she was pretty popular. So this guy makes silver shrines to Artemis that brought no little business to the craftsmen. These, these, these craftsmen, he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we, we have our wealth. So if anything happens to, you know, the desire for for temple shrines to go in people's houses, little idols to go in people's houses of Artemis, then we're in trouble, business-wise. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods, like Artemis, made with hands, are not gods. This is an existential threat to our wealth. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Listen, I am not here to talk about my wealth, okay? I am here to talk about the fact that uh, we need to defend the, the goddess Artemis. Don't you understand? I'm going to get rich on the side. But you know, that's not my point. 
We need to defend Artemis and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. We need to fight for the goddess. Now when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I'm repeating it because that's what they did. You'll see they did it for two hours. That's a, that's a long time. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. These are Christian guys, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul, he wished to go in amongst the crowd, I gotta save my buddies. The disciples wouldn't let him. No, you don't. Did you go out there? You're gonna get you're gonna get massacred. They want you, man. You're the one who's ruining everything for them. So, like, stay right here. So, like, you know, guarded the door. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him from outside and said, urging him, don't venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was, was in confusion and most of them didn't know why they had come together. I don't know why I'm yelling. Great. <laughs> Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, hey, 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 just settle down, right? Or my dad used to do, time out, time out. He probably didn't do the time out because they would have killed him because I hate that. But like... Just settle down, settle down. Motion with hand, wanted to make defense to the crowd. Hey, it's not like you think. Paul's a good dude. But when they recognized that he was a, a Jew for two hours, they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. These are the adversaries that Paul said he could reason with. These are the adversaries that Paul said, oh, 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 yeah, they're there, but a great door for ministry is open to me. If you're sitting inside that house with Paul and you, the door is being guarded, are you sitting to yourself saying, well, this is an opportunity. The gospel could go forth here. Paul, there's so many people against you. Yeah, I know, I know. but what a cool opportunity. Is that the way you'd respond? When things go wrong in your life, do you sit back and say, whoo, this is a great opportunity for the Lord to work? Or do you say, like most of us, Lord's not in it? Because how do you know the Lord's in it? Well, if it's easy, right? <laughs> I got, dude, I got on the plane and everything, I gave me the first class seat and I sat there, it was a God thing. Don't we use that language, don't we? It's a God thing. We always use the God thing language for the stuff that works out though, right? Do you, ever, do you ever go into the thing and not only do they, you know, they don't give you the first class seat, they kick you off the plane. And you're walking away and going, that's a God thing. Do you do that? Nobody, nobody does this. And yet Paul is doing this. So here's a question. Why did Paul stay in Ephesus in the presence of adversaries? The answer is because he saw it as a God thing. He saw it to God's hand in all of it. You guys, seriously, if you go back to this passage that I just read through his little description of everything, just listen. Listen to all of the language about God's providence and his control over stuff, the way that Paul just normally talks. I'm gonna visit Pastor, uh, after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia and, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey, you know, wherever I go, for I don't wanna see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work. What has opened, that's a past tense, or a, a passive voice, sorry. What, what does that mean? That means somebody else did it. Who did it? Who opened the door? The Lord, the Lord did. He's saying effective work has opened by God to me, and there are many adversaries. Don't you see his whole attitude toward everything that he did was basically like, yeah, God's in control of all this stuff. His travel plans, who shows up to fight back against him, 
whether or not there's opportunity or not. This is the way that Paul did almost all of his ministry. I tried to head in this direction. The spirit of Jesus stopped me. I don't know how. Maybe it was a mean person at the border. So I turned and I went this other way. This is the way the guy lived his whole life was as directed. Not as directed in the sense that, hey, Paul, take a right. Hey, Paul, take a left. But he recognized that his whole world was under the hand of a good God who was moving Paul forward in the mission, even if it didn't look like what Paul thought it should look like. Look, the presence of difficulty does not mean we're out of God's will. Paul saw all his circumstances as coming from the hands of a good father who had a purpose in them. The difficulty, listen closely to me, the difficulty merely meant God would show his power there. If the Lord was stacking the deck against himself so that when he blows the deck down, he'll say to you, cool, right? And you would never see the power of God had he not stacked it up. Had you gotten first class all the time, you would never see the Lord provide the charter flight after you got kicked off. <laughs> you know, there's a story in, uh, one of the, in, the, in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 14, that you know about, I'm sure, most of you. Jesus is up on a mountain and he's praying. He has just sent the disciples in a boat to go to the other side of the lake. In fact, that would be sold them. Hey, get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake. I'll meet you there. So in the middle of the night, he's done praying on the mountain. He comes down and he starts, you know, instead of getting in a boat, he does what God does, which is walk on the sea. He gets near the boat. Disciples are freaking out. Ah, we're dead. It's a ghost. And Jesus is like, so, 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 so. No, no, no. It's just me. And Peter, you know, the adventurous one, is like, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. Jesus is like, cool, bring it. So Peter puts his feet on the water, and he looks up at Jesus, and he starts do, 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 walking on the water. Oh, no. And it changes because the waves are huge. And he starts going down, save me, Jesus. Jesus reaches out, pulls him up, and says, you have little faith. So what is, this, what is this story all about? Well, one thing it's about is that Jesus sometimes sends you into storms. That the presence of the storm is not an indication that Jesus didn't send you out there. He sent them to the other side, right? He, promised, he said, look, we're gonna go to the other side. They get out in the middle. They're like, we're gonna die. No, he sent you to the other side. Secondly, it's about Jesus giving Peter an opportunity to see his power over the most difficult waves, right? They could have walked around on the land, guys. They could have gone around. It wouldn't have been a big deal, but they go out in the boat. It's a setup. Jesus gets out there and it's like, you wanna see? Here's the difficulty. I knew it was gonna be this way. I show up. You guys are freaking out. Let me show you my power. Get out of the boat, Peter. Get out of the boat. Walk on the water. Would that have ever ever happened had the storm not been there? Would he have ever seen the power of God like that, experienced what he did, had the storm not been there? So there's a man who's been born blind and the disciples show up and they say to Jesus, okay, so what, why did this guy, what, what happened to this guy? Did, did his parents sin so that he, this is the result? He's blind, or did he sin? And this is the result, you know, sin in the womb, I guess. I don't like you, mom. No more broccoli. Who is it? And Jesus says to the disciples, look, it's neither. He didn't sin, and his parents didn't sin to make this the result. This man is blind so that the power of God might be revealed in him. Blindness. His inability to see was a setup for God to demonstrate his power. Do you, do you think that maybe, maybe the circumstance, the waves, the blindness, all of the things that are crashing in on you right now are an opportunity that God has placed you in so that you might see his power? 
and that otherwise the thing that you really wanted, which is a calm sea and everything going right, you would never have seen what he's able to do. And maybe, just maybe, what God wants for you more than anything else is not a happy life, but a glorious vision of his ability. So you say, well, wait a minute. Okay, so that's what's going on. What do I do when I'm in the middle of the sea, right? Drowning. Well, you do what Peter should have done, right? You look at Jesus. And you say, look, in your hands is all power and authority in all the world. I know that everything that's happening to me as a Christian is guaranteed to work together for my eternal good. And that you are abundantly more capable than I could ever ask or imagine. So even though everything's going wrong, I'm just gonna keep walking, man. We are where we are because God has us here and he wants to show us his power here. So live as directed. I have one minute and 14, 13 seconds left for the last one. Piece of cake, honor as is right. So here are the last... uh, Verses, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Okay, so Timothy was Paul's, like, he called him his son in the faith. He was like one of the most important and traveling companions that Paul had. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. Now, why does he need to be at ease? Well, because Timothy's a little timid. In the books that are written to him, uh, First and Second Timothy, Paul is repeatedly saying, man, you need to stand strong against the false teachers. You need to fight back against the false teachers. Give it to them, Timothy. It's like he's, Paul's like the coach on the side. Like, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Because Timothy's like, he's not so sure. He's like most of us, not so sure. So Paul has to be his cheerleader. So he says to these this people that he's gonna show up without me there. So he, he needs to be put at ease among you for look, he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Uh, don't put him in ease and don't treat him well just because he has some title. He doesn't have a title. Don't treat him because he's like the most important teacher that you've ever known. No, you, you treat him well because he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. You should honor him for the fact that he's doing the work of the Lord. Doesn't matter if he's young. Doesn't matter if he's inexperienced. Doesn't matter if you think that you should honor someone else more like me. Honor him, because he's doing the same work I am. So let no one despise him. Let no one look down on him. Treat him badly. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, look, um, those who do the work of the Lord are worthy of honor, regardless of their qualification to do it. In the beginning of this book, there's a whole bunch of debates that, Paul's, that, that the Corinthians are having. They're saying, uh, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. These are like the big dudes, right? I am of Piper, I'm of MacArthur, I'm of Furtick. Don't be, right? I, I'm of these, they're famous. I want, if I had a chance, I'd go and I'd meet with each one of those people. I don't want their underling. I don't want somebody else. I want to hear from the dude. That's who I want to honor. Those big names, people write books. And yet Paul's like, listen, it doesn't matter if it's those people or if it's Timothy who shows up. You should honor them. There's a story in a, in a book called uh, Well-Intentioned Dragons about a pastor who went to his church, the new church, and he's a young guy. It's one of his first churches. He's been out of seminary just a little bit. He shows up, and every time he preaches a sermon on Sunday morning, there's a guy in the congregation who goes home and all afternoon writes a report and comes back in the Sunday evening service, hands it to the pastor and says, I wrote up a report on your sermon this morning. Here's how I think you did. And in the report, all it is is references to this big-time preacher would have said it this way. This big-time preacher would have said it this way. This big-time preacher would have said it that way. And the story is ultimately about how this young pastor is devastated because he's not the big-time preacher. And my heart gets so sick when I read that because I see it all the time in the Christian church. 
Did you know that this weekend, I'm being broadcast to nobody right now. This weekend, we have, at each of our campuses, we have people preaching live. And there are some people, I promise you, there are some people at those other campuses who will show up and be like, well, it's not the main guy. Starbucks? I know because I hear it. But may it never be. May it never be. Why? You should honor them. Why? Because they're doing the same work I'm doing. And listen, the church of Jesus Christ needs more than just one or two or three voices. Do you realize that the Spirit of God has empowered lots of voices so that you can grow? And it's often through the unrecognized voices that you will find that you've grown more than you ever imagined. So honor them. So here's, here's my homework for you, all right? I'm gonna finish all this right now. Here's my homework. Uh, this week, can you do me a favor? If you know of somebody who is serving the Lord, either it's on staff here at Harvest, or if they're volunteering in a place, if they're a servant of Jesus in this church, can you write down their name, make a commitment to email them, find them, pat them on the back, and say, I thank God for you, because what you're doing is serving Jesus. Can you do that? Can you imagine a church where that was like normal? I can. It's amazing. You can learn so much from travel plans. I should probably listen to my wife more often. Anyway, that's the moral of the story. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your kindness, for your word. I'm thankful, Father, for uh, these dear people. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be an encouraging body of people and trusting in you and all your direction. And ultimately, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified by all the things. We find us giving everything that we've got in response to your grace. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.